0: Chapter two Part one Of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. TWO Years of President Cleveland, Part one President Cleveland, from the very outset of his administration, was destined to confound the predictions of his political adversaries. The misrepresentations concerning him with which the country had been flooded during the campaign of 1884 had found lodgment in the minds of millions. Now that he was actually in office, a shiver of nervous apprehension ran through those Republicans who honestly believed that a democratic administration meant ruin and disaster. They had been told that Mr. Cleveland was a man of limited intelligence, of low tastes, and of disreputable associations— Partisan newspapers had prophesied that his cabinet would be made up of barroom politicians and old-time party hacks. It was said, for instance, that John Kelly would be appointed Secretary of the Treasury in return for the support which Tammany Hall had reluctantly given to Mr. Cleveland. Editorial writers let their imaginations run riot in suggesting other like appointments as not only possible, but probable. At the North, there were many who feared lest the results of the Civil War should be undone, and lest the government of the United States should be given into the hands of rebels. The Negroes in the South were told that a Democratic president might seek to re-enslave them. Not a few timorous souls all over the country looked for immediate commercial panic and financial ruin. In this respect, history was only repeating itself just as the Federalists in 1801 had raised the cry that President Jefferson was an atheist, a satyr, a jacobin, and an enemy to law and to the rights of property, and just as the Whigs in 1829 had thought to alarm the country. Note 1, page 50. By describing President Jackson as a gambler, murderer, and border ruffian, so Mr. Cleveland's accession to the presidency was declared to be the beginning of a political saturnalia. His brief inaugural address, however, surprised those persons who had thought of him as dull and as capable of nothing more than platitude. Not only was it dignified and wholly worthy of the occasion, but it contained more than one passage of grave and almost stately eloquence. The following sentences embody a spirit which will be found to have animated Mr. Cleveland's whole career of public service. It expresses the ideal principle of true democracy. BUT HE WHO TAKES THE OATH TODAY TO PRESERVE, PROTECT, AND DEFEND THE CONSTITUTION OF THE UNITED STATES ONLY ASSUMES THE SOLEMN OBLIGATION WHICH EVERY PATRIOTIC CITIZEN, ON THE FARM, IN THE WORKSHOP, IN THE MARTS OF TRADE, AND EVERYWHERE, SHOULD SHARE WITH HIM. THE CONSTITUTION WHICH PRESCRIBES HIS OATH, MY countrymen, IS YOURS. THE GOVERNMENT YOU HAVE CHOSEN HIM TO ADMINISTER FOR A TIME IS YOURS. THE SUFFRAGE WHICH EXECUTES THE WILL OF FREE MEN IS YOURS. The laws and the entire scheme of our civil rule, from the town meeting to the state capitals and the national capital, are yours. Your every voter as surely as your chief magistrate under the same high sanction, though in a different sphere, exercises a public trust. Nor is this all. Every citizen owes to the country a vigilant watch and close scrutiny of its public servants and a fair and reasonable estimate of their fidelity and usefulness. "'Thus is the people's will impressed upon the whole framework of our civil polity—municipal, state, and federal—and this is the price of our liberty and the inspiration of our faith in the Republic.'" Note 2, page 51. At the close of the inaugural ceremonies, President Cleveland transmitted to the Senate the names of the men whom he had chosen to constitute his cabinet. For Secretary of State, he had selected Senator Thomas Francis Bayard of Delaware, a portly gentleman who bore a name justly famous in American political history, since for five generations some member of the Bayard family had represented the state of Delaware in the National Senate, of which body Mr. Bayard himself had been temporary president in 1881. The new Secretary of War was Mr. William Crowninshield Endicott of Massachusetts, a very Brahmin of the Brahmins, being a descendant of John Endicott who was one of the six gentlemen to whom the first royal patent for the Massachusetts Bay Territory had been granted in 1628, and who was colonial governor in 1630 and 1664, and president of the United Colonies of New England in 1658. Mr. Endicott was a Harvard graduate, a lawyer of ability, and had served for ten years as a Justice of the Supreme Court of Massachusetts. He had taken an active part in political life and was an earnest advocate of reform in the civil service. For Secretary of the Navy, the President nominated Mr. William C. Whitney of New York. Mr. Whitney was sprung from old New England stock. Educated at Yale and Harvard, he had engaged in the practice of the law and in 1871 had done effective work in destroying the Tweed Ring. Mr. Whitney was a man of wealth, an enthusiastic sportsman, possessed of a winning personality, generous, popular, and widely known. He was also a most astute politician and had conducted Mr. Cleveland's campaign in New York with consummate skill." Mr. Daniel Manning of New York received the treasury portfolio, although usage was against giving two cabinet offices to citizens of the same state. Mr. Manning had been better known as an active party manager than as a financier. He had been Mr. Tilden's trusted lieutenant, and had shown himself to be adroit and full of resource. He was the head of an important bank in Albany, and was soon to prove himself no less able in dealing with large financial problems than he had been fertile in political strategy. For Secretary of the Interior, the President named Senator L. Q. C. Lamar of Mississippi. Senator Lamar had drafted the Ordinance of Secession at the Mississippi Convention of 1861 and had served in the Confederate Army for two years and as Judge Advocate for a few months. He had, however, accepted the results of the war with frankness and sincerity and was known to be as liberal-minded and patriotic as he was liked and respected. Note 3. Page 52 and 53 senator lamar had the tastes of a scholar he was fond of books and of philosophical researches and was an admirable type of cultivated southern gentleman the new attorney general was senator augustus h garland of arkansas who had opposed secession in eighteen sixty one though subsequently he had been a member of the confederate congress and later after the war ended governor of arkansas President Cleveland chose for the office of Postmaster General Colonel William F. Velas of Wisconsin, a Union soldier who had fought under Grant at Vicksburg. During the campaign he had served as chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Altogether, the new cabinet was one against which no reasonable criticism could be brought. More than that, it was a very remarkable body of administrators. For personal distinction it had had few, if any, superiors in the whole history of the government— for ability, it had not been equaled since the days of President Lincoln. Those deluded partisans who expected the new president to surround himself with a group of henchmen, unknown or only too well known, were put to silence. Those who had looked for a government of ex-Confederates had not to say— There was even some significance in the fact that President Cleveland's first official act after making his Cabinet nominations was to sign the commission of Ulysses S. Grant, restoring that illustrious but now impoverished soldier to the retired list of the Army with the rank and pay of General. Fortune soon gave the President a chance to show that in dealing with the foreign relations of the United States he could act with admirable energy and decision. Only a few days after his inauguration, a revolt broke out upon the Isthmus of Panama headed by a local incendiary named Pedro Prestan. Prestan raised a motley force, proclaimed a revolutionary government, took the city of Aspinwall, now Colon, levied contributions on the merchants, both native and foreign, and threatened to take possession of the Isthmian Railway. Growing bolder, he seized an American steamship, the Colon, and imprisoned her officers, the United States consul, who protested, was thrown into a dungeon March 31st. President Cleveland took instant action. Five vessels of war were ordered to the isthmus. A strong body of marines with gatling guns and a battery of light artillery were landed, and the armed forces of the United States soon held the whole line of the Panama Railway. The colon was taken from Prestan under the guns of the cruiser Galena, and his prisoners were rescued. The revolt collapsed. Colombian troops retook the city of Aspinwall, and Preston himself was promptly hanged as a common malefactor. Not long after, the South American Republic of Ecuador received a needed lesson. The government of that country had imprisoned one Julio Santos, an American citizen, and had refused either to release him or to bring him to trial. President Arthur's Secretary of State had again and again protested, but in vain. President Cleveland took up the case with sharp decisiveness which gave the Ecuadorians a shock. A man of war, the Iroquois, appeared at Guayaquil. A peremptory demand was made, and Mr. Santos was promptly set at liberty. The country viewed with interest still another proof of the administration's capacity for action. In 1882, Congress had passed the so-called Edmonds Anti-Polygamy Bill, aimed against the plural marriages of Mormonism. The enforcement of this law had greatly irritated the leaders of the Mormon Church, who had always secretly regarded Utah as outside the jurisdiction of the nation's laws. Perhaps they now accepted the Republican estimate of President Cleveland, and fancied that he would prove to be a second Buchanan, nerveless, and irresolute. At any rate, the Mormons in Salt Lake City began to show a spirit of insolence and insubordination. Armed companies of them were formed and drilled by night. On the 4th of July, the national flag was half-masted in derision by a Mormon officer. Threats were made that all Gentiles were to be forcibly expelled from Salt Lake City in defiance of the national government. If such a coup had actually been planned, it was speedily made impossible. By orders from Washington, two batteries of the United States artillery and a regiment of infantry were stationed at Fort Douglas, which dominated the city and in the military department, which included Utah, 2,000 regular troops were held in readiness for instant service. Whatever plans for a Mormon outbreak had existed were crushed before they reached a head. All these circumstances attending the early days of Mr. Cleveland's administration gave the country at large an entirely new conception of the President and of his capacity for government. Moderate Republicans recognized the fact that he well deserved the full measure of their respect. Partisans who hoped that he would justify the unfavorable pictures which they had diligently painted were compelled to wait in sullen silence for some future opportunity of censure. The governmental departments were most efficiently conducted. Note 4. Pages 55 and 56. The country remained as prosperous as ever. The awful panic which had been predicted proved to be only another fiction of the campaign orators. Moreover, Republicans who had occasion to make the new President's acquaintance came away with nothing but pleasant words for his easy, unaffected, and good-humored ways. It was not many weeks, indeed, before Mr. Blaine himself appeared at the White House to make a friendly call upon his late opponent. He was received with the greatest courtesy, and the two men chatted pleasantly together in the President's library. One of the unwritten laws of American public life permits a defeated candidate for the presidency to ask a political favor of his successful competitor, and Mr. Blaine desired to avail himself of this gracious little privilege. He requested the president not to remove from office Mr. Joseph H. Manley, who was postmaster at Augusta, Mr. Blaine's home city. Mr. Manley was an old friend and earnest supporter of Mr. Blaine, and the President very cordially granted the request, after which the interview terminated with every evidence of personal good feeling. Note 5. Page 56. Some time after, a visiting delegation at the White House was found to include among its members the redoubtable Dr. Burchard himself. And a smothered cheer went up with not a little laughter when the alliterative clergyman shook the President's hand and expressed his pleasure at finding him in such good health. Altogether, these days afforded as near an approach to an era of good feeling as Mr. Cleveland ever enjoyed throughout his years of public office. They represented the lull in political warfare that always follows an election, in which passion has for the time exhausted itself and kindly feeling has resumed its normal sway." Americans are, proverbially, the best-natured people in the world, and in the case of a new president they always feel disposed to let him orient himself before the din of party strife begins again. Few presidents have ever lived so completely under the microscope as did Mr. Cleveland during his first two years of office. That his countrymen should feel an intense curiosity regarding him was only natural. He had come so suddenly into prominence that, at the time of the election, he was scarcely known outside of his own state. To millions of those who had voted for him he was only a name and not a definite personality, as was Mr. Blaine, who had been conspicuous in public life for more than twenty years. Again, the very violence of the attacks that had been made upon him excited a lively interest in his ways and manners. Finally, he was a democratic president, and no democratic president had been seen for a quarter of a century. No wonder, then, that the Washington newspaper correspondents filled their letters with gossip about his goings and comings, his appearance, his opinions, and his daily acts. The slightest scrap of information regarding him was eagerly caught up and told and retold to interested listeners. In this universal curiosity there was almost no unfriendliness. It was the expression of a very human wish to know just what manner of man it was who had so suddenly and unexpectedly come into the very highest office in the land. Mr. Cleveland at this time was forty-seven years of age and in the full vigour of life. Somewhat over the middle height he was powerful of frame, inclined to corpulency, and of a sanguineous temperament. Contrary to the unfriendly description that had been widely circulated, his head was large and was well set upon a sturdy neck a broad forehead projected slightly over a pair of deep-set, clear blue eyes. His nose and chin were both indicative of a strong will, as were the firm lines of his mouth which was partly covered by a drooping blonde moustache. His complexion was ruddy with health, his broad shoulders were always vigorously squared, and he looked like one whom no amount of hard, exacting work could daunt. In his movements he was slow and almost sluggish, but the alertness of his mind impressed all who met him his manner was one of perfect naturalness and simplicity. Now and then in talking a humorous gleam came into his eyes, and then one might expect some droll though dry remark made more effective by the quiet manner of its delivery. His voice was of a tenor quality, not resonant or sonorous, yet one which had remarkable carrying power, so that in public speaking he could be clearly heard at a considerable distance. Those who made their first acquaintance with him at this time were almost always pleased, and were perhaps surprised to find that they were pleased. One of the visitors, note 6, page 58, who afterwards became a strenuous opponent of the President's policies, wrote of him, There is more to the President than even his friends are wont to allow, and he gains rather than loses an acquaintance. He has a deal of craft of the wiser and better sort, and needs only a little more training to foot it with the shrewdest of the politicians whom he affects to despise. He is a good listener and a good talker. His most obvious characteristics are straightforwardness and simplicity, both in speech and bearing. He seems to be extraordinarily frank. But, to a close observer, these appear to be outer aspects merely... He is not a man of confidences or effusions, is uncommonly self-possessed and self-contained, and emits on occasion a tough, dry humor ready, relevant, and illustrative. Mr. Cleveland had a colossal capacity for work. He rose early and was at his desk by nine o'clock. He gave a close personal attention to details, wrote a good part of his correspondence with his own hand, and never spared himself in his endeavor to get at the bottom of every subject which came before him. He took nothing for granted, but delved into reports, documents, and letters until he satisfied himself that he had mastered the case, as a lawyer masters a brief. The observer, who has just been quoted, wrote, He is a wondrous worker. He has the poor man's love of work and trust in work. He wants to earn his day's wages, and there are some things which a president must do and ought to do which go against the grain, because they seem frivolous, belonging rather to play than to work. A keen but not unfriendly Republican critic made some further interesting notes. Note 7, page 59. Cleveland gets his power from his resoluteness. He is a self-contained, honest man with strong indignations. He hates a liar and will not let down his attitude of self-respect to please somebody whom he does not like. His intellectual repulsions are decided and irrevocable. The President gives more time to his office than is due to it, and he exacts of the subordinates that they give at least official hours to their tasks. Consequently, the Government at present carries less time-killers and triflers than formerly. His greatest happiness he probably derives from his own rough self-assertion and from his luck in reaching high stations in politics without much labor. He comes of a fortunate stock. The old blood of Connecticut is about the best blood for government uses that we possess. Cleveland's personal composition is this old Connecticut basis somewhat flavored by free living. He belongs to that class of preacher's sons who, for a period of time, fly the track and violate their parents' ethics, yet at bottom have a certain ethical truth and are slightly harsh with infractions and infractors of rights. He observed that the Germans of Buffalo were, on the whole, about the best citizens, and he was happy sitting on a sanded floor with an old German landlady to refill his glass. Something of Martin Luther, therefore, became involved with the character of Jonathan Trumbull. Nothing that has come from him seems to show that he is an adept in society or art or law or literature. He is a pretty good writer as presidents go and makes his points concisely and impressively. Of imagination he seems to have none." "'But he is a good, stout, rough man of all work "'who puts the establishment in running order "'and is as good as a watchdog at the gate.'" The domestic side of the White House was directed by the President's sister, Miss Rose Elizabeth Cleveland, whose personality interested the country almost as much as did that of the President himself. Miss Cleveland was then a lady of some thirty-nine years of age who had been a teacher and a public lecturer on literary and historical subjects. She was a type of the intellectuelle, very carefully educated, very widely read, and a good deal of a personage in her own way. She wore her hair cropped like a man's and had a touch of masculine decision in her bearing. During her stay at the White House, she published a volume of criticism entitled George Eliot's Poetry and Other Studies. Note 8, page 61 that had a good deal of vogue which it deserved on its own merits, for it was written in a crisp, nervous style, and showed a good deal of intellectual acuteness. Note 9, page 61. Miss Cleveland did the social honours of the White House in a very satisfactory way, though her own tastes and ambitions were not social. She talked well, and very much as she wrote, In fact, her conversation must have seemed rather unusual to many of those who heard it, for it was decidedly elusive and was interspersed with classical quotations that were probably Greek indeed to the politicians who attended the president's receptions with their families. One can imagine with what feelings a group of typical congressmen's wives would hear Miss Cleveland casually remark, I wish that I could observe Washington life in its political phase, but I suppose I am too near the center to get an accurate perspective on that. Those who live on Mount Athos do not see Mount Athos. Note 10, page 62. The first annoyance which the President was forced to suffer came not from his political opponents but from his own followers. The Democrats, no less than the Republicans, had found many of their expectations unfulfilled. There were two reasons for this, with one of which the President had nothing at all to do. Ever since the disputed election of 1876, a sinister belief had taken a firm hold upon the masses of the party. The desperation with which in the year just named the Republicans had fought to keep the presidency in their own hands had inspired a suspicion that something more than the mere spoils of office was at stake. Men then said that there were secrets which, if known, would show a frightful condition of affairs in the great departments of the government, and especially in connection with the Treasury. It was whispered that the Republican Party stood ready to initiate even a civil war rather than allow a Democratic president to be seated, with the power of bringing to light a mass of infamous transactions by which untold millions had been stolen. One of the documents most widely circulated by the Democrats in the Blaine-Cleveland contest was a pamphlet bearing on its cover in huge letters the words, Open the Books. It charged that the financial records of the government had been falsified that in the ledgers of the Registrar of the United States and the Secretary of the Treasury, more than 25,000 erasures and alterations had been fraudulently made, and that the official reports for two years alone, 1870 and 1871, showed a discrepancy amounting to nearly a quarter of a billion dollars. A list of alleged defalcations was appended, affecting specifically the Pension Office, the Navy Department, the Post Office Department, and the Treasury. These charges were in part supported by extracts from the testimony taken by investigating committees of the House of Representatives in 1878 and by citations from official letters and reports. Mr. Hendricks, on July twelfth, 1884, addressing a large gathering in Indianapolis, had said with significant emphasis, We want to have the books in the government offices opened for examination. Among the ignorant stories still more extraordinary were rife. The Garfield-Hancock campaign of 1880 had been marked by a lavish use of money on the part of the Republicans, especially in Indiana. This money had, for the most part, come from the employees of the government departments who had practically been forced to contribute through fear of dismissal. Note 11, page 63. But the rumor spread that the great sums spent in the purchase of venal voters had in reality come out of the United States Treasury. There were men who declared that the government printing presses had, in 1880, been run all night, printing off sheets of treasury notes of low denominations, and that the paper money thus fraudulently and secretly made had been turned over to the Republican Campaign Committee. It is odd that so absurd a tale should have been told, and still more strange that thousands should have implicitly believed it. But the fact serves to indicate how thoroughly convinced were the masses of the Democratic party that the new administration would at once unearth evidence of stupendous crimes committed during the long republican regime. End of chapter two, Part one.